0: This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them, spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ariel Adams of the Superlative Podcast, and today my guest is Mr. Pierre-Yves Donze. He is a professor of business history in Osaka. Pierre-Yves, hello.
1: Hey, hello, Ariel. Hello.
0: Now, the reason that you're on the show today is because you wrote an interesting book, and the title of the book is The Business of Time, A Global History of the Watch Industry. And we're going to spend most of the show, of course, talking about the book. But before we do, maybe you could explain a little bit about who you are and, and why you wanted to write this book in the first place.
1: Yeah, so thanks a lot for the invitation to join you today. It's a great pleasure to, to be here. So uh, I'm a, basically, I'm a historian, a historian trained, born and trained in Switzerland, uh, I made my studies at the University of Neuchâtel, uh, close to the watch industry, and I had a lot of interest for this industry during my studies. I made my PhD in Switzerland, and then after that, I moved to different countries. I'm based in Japan since 15 years. And I continue working on, uh, on the watch industry. And during all of these years, I've been studying uh, companies, countries, regions, and so on related to the watch industry uh, from, uh, of course, Switzerland to Japan, Hong Kong, the US, and so on. I published many academic papers for very specialized journals that I wanted one day you know, to make a profitable use of all the materials I had gathered around the world in a book for our general audience. Uh, this is the reason of, uh, of this book.
0: Okay, so that's 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 good to know. It sounds like this a little bit was the summation of a lot of other study condensed to one. Um, I think it's safe to say that if you went to school in Châtel, you're you're probably Swiss. Is that is that your background?
1: Yes, of course. Yeah, Swiss French. Yeah, yeah. Okay,
0: so yes, yeah, Swiss, Swiss French in the region. It's 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 sort of a mixture there, and of course, when you're in Neuchatel, for those that don't know, this is a historic center of watchmaking in Europe, especially in Switzerland. Um, Breguet was from Neuchatel. A, a lot of very important watchmakers. So this was really an epicenter of watchmaking. Today, still in Neuchatel, there is a lot of watchmaking. Um, Talk a little bit about, you know, doing this from Japan. It sounds like this book was primarily written while you are in Japan. Was that a difficult thing to do?
1: Not uh, not so much because uh, even if I'm based in Japan, I'm still very active in Switzerland. Uh, I'm visiting professor at the University of Fribourg since a few years and I often come back. I still work for some watch companies from uh Uh, with some Swiss colleagues and so on. So basically, before the COVID, I used to be living between both countries. And so the COVID crisis was a bit uh, difficult, but it was also time, you know, to uh, to rest and to focus on making a book. So I had lots of data, archives on my computer and so on. I often go back to Switzerland. And uh, so let's say, I think geography was not a, or distance was not a problem at all for, for making this book.
0: Now, talking about the subject of the book, you know, the history of the watch industry, would you say that this is a topic which is generally understood and agreed upon? Or is there a lot of controversy or misunderstanding um, about the, the, the history of the industry, even though the industry is so much based on its history?
1: Yes, the, uh, this industry is very much based on its history. But, you know, history became kind of a resource for marketing reasons. And so it's not so much history itself, but the story you can talk about history, which is important today uh, in, in these firms. Well, what I wanted to do here, it's not so much a controversy, is to understand how this uh, industry globally developed during uh, the last two centuries. Because even if we still talk a lot about the Swiss watch industry, Japanese watch industry and so on, uh, this industry has mostly uh, lost its national basis. It's a very globalized industry. Uh, even if you look from Switzerland, we have lots of companies, you know, with uh, French capital from LVMH. Uh, we have a citizen watch from Japan who purchased Swiss companies. Swiss companies like Swatch Group has subsidiaries in Thailand. And so it's uh, even if we, if the narratives focus on the uh, national territories, this industry is mostly based on global uh, organizations. And I wanted to, uh, to understand how this shift occurred from, nation, from national basis to, uh, to global basis.
0: Now, that's, uh, we'll talk a lot about that. And I just sort of want to discuss this whole notion of why this would happen in the first place. And for those who haven't done business with Swiss companies or worked closely with watch brands, you might not realize there's this uh, discretion or secrecy uh, as well as this sort of desire to want to take full credit watch brands like to say that they do everything themselves or they've done it all themselves in their history and they don't tend to credit those that helped them. Why is that? Why is the culture so focused on saying we and we alone did it?
1: Yeah, because it it gives a legitimacy to brands to embody luxury uh, watchmaking, uh, which means making uh, everything ourselves like artisans from uh, in a long-term perspective. So it's really something new. I would say that uh, before the 1990s, watch companies didn't, uh, you know, emphasize so much these facts uh, because everybody knew the suppliers, uh, uh, what is ETA today, supply movements and so on, but the shift to luxury in the 90s, and a comeback of mechanical watchmaking in the same context makes it necessary to stress that we are, uh, you know, we are the, the result of a long uh, artisan tradition and we still continue it. So it's part of the storytelling of the industry. So that's why it's important to have in-house movements and so on uh, for marketing reasons especially, not, not so much for industrial reasons, to emphasize this message.
0: So I guess what you're trying to say is having ownership of the process, i.e., legitimacy from a marketing and the sales perspective, is better for business than saying that you do it with a lot of others and that it's a a, a true collaborative industry. Is, is is that I guess the implication? Yes, this
1: is exactly that. This is this is very important, especially for the movements, for external external parts like dials, cases, and so on. Uh, companies uh, don't hide their collaboration with other other companies because the legitimacy of the watchmaker is relies on the movement more than on the external parts.
0: Now, I, I think part of the subtext of the book, as well as this conversation, is that that's not really how most watch brands operate. There's a lot of suppliers and other types of companies that they work with, and talent, and, and various contractors to get things done. And that the reality is that there's a complicated ecosystem, even if that doesn't correspond to the marketing language,
1: right? Yes, this is exactly what I, I tried to demonstrate.
0: Who is this information
1: most useful
0: to? Who, knowing this information, can make the best use out of it? Is it people in the watch industry? Is it collectors? Is it consumers? Is it investors? I agree with you this is a big topic, but sometimes I wonder, who is, who, for who is this information the most valuable? You so know what I mean? I mean?
1: yeah, yeah I, know, I know exactly i think it's definitely not managers of watch companies because they know that already is is a daily practice of business is <laughs> uh, I would say it's for the first uh, of for the general public public who wants to understand how does it work uh why we have uh, so uh, uh, important watch industry still in Switzerland. Uh, if you want to understand it beyond the narrative of the brands, to to understand the, the, the reality of this industry, so it includes uh, uh, journalists, collectors, and uh, and investors, also for for different reasons. I, I often talk to to investors because they really want to know how this industry works <laughs> before investing in, in some uh, or in another company. Uh, so I don't have a specific uh, target. It's uh, to people who want to understand the industry as it works.
0: Now, is there a desire at all? And I'm not saying there is. I'm a bit of an activist and I've been, you know, on a bit of a, a soapbox, as they say, for many years because I want certain changes for the industry to happen, which I think are in its best interest you know early on i've advocated for embracing the internet and digital marketing which they did eventually and of course embracing listening to the consumer and working with the enthusiasts which which they have and i think another big thing that i focused on is keeping the watch industry honest would you say that is that part of your strategy would you like to help keep the industry honest especially since it's an industry that you grew up around <laughs>
1: Yeah, but I would say I don't have a so uh, direct uh, objective with this book. You know, I, I'm a scholar and uh, I uh, my, my, all my work as a researcher was to understand first for myself, maybe also because I come from this region and all my research really, at first was for myself to understand how it works. And I want to, to understand it. And once I understood, I want to transmit this knowledge. Uh, of course, uh, but I'm not sure, um, I, I, you know, I'm not sure I have so big impact on, on which uh, companies and businessmen to keep them honest and so on. I think uh, the power of a big narrative is very much more important than a book by a historian. But it's... That just, makes sense. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. Well, I have so much money to invest in China and other parts of the world to, uh, to transmit a so beautiful message and story. Uh, but it's just uh, you know understanding how it works. I think is very important, and maybe a owner who takes time to look for specific information to to gather knowledge and so on may have more interest than uh, a manager of a company who would say, uh, Okay, from now on, I will be honest and, and and so on
0: well i mean it's it's I think the reason I asked is because there are some individuals out there. That of course have this desire, um, you know, people that grew up around you, uh, people who want to see changes in it. And I'm not saying that you should see it one way or another. I was just trying to ask. Of course, as an academic, you're not really supposed to have an agenda. You're supposed to sort of tell it like it is, and you know, let the reader decide for you know for themselves what to take away. I, I just wanted to ask the question because, you know, in in part of the the release about the book, you talk about wanting to make it clear that this is a global industry and not really just, you know, contained within Switzerland. And you know, there's various reasons that people might want to say that, but you're right, just from an informational standpoint if you don't already know that, it is quite interesting. Let's talk about the 1980s. And I sort of want to work our way backwards because the 1980s was probably the most pivotal era in the modern watch industry that made the luxury watch industry. What can you tell people about the 1980s? You know, what was the circumstances and what were some of the most pivotal things to happen
1: in the watch industry really starting then? Yeah, so uh, you, are, you are right, it's a birth of the modern uh, luxury watch industry and I would say even beyond of the modern luxury uh, industry uh, at all with LVMH being uh, founded during these decade. Uh, it's actually, you are right, it's a turning point and most often, this turning point is seen as a result of a technological change. You know, with the quartz watch, which changed completely the rules of the game. So, it's true that uh, quartz uh, had very uh, important impact, but it's just a part of the story. Uh, actually, during the 80s, uh, viewed especially from Switzerland, we could see a very important industrial transformation. Swiss watch industry used to be based on lots of small and medium-sized companies. Uh, too small to invest massively in the mass production of high quality watches, uh, like Rolex would do, uh, itself, but Rolex is not so big if you look at just at the scale of, of the volume in cooperation with the Japanese or American watch companies. And so, so the crisis of the early eighties, uh, was uh, an important outcome of his lack of concentration of production in uh, Switzerland. Companies were too small to invest in massive projects. And, uh, and the quartz was one of these massive projects. It was important to invest massively in this new technology. And then the Swiss front was also very, very high uh, at the time. So making difficult or more expensive for Swiss watchmakers to sell, especially in uh, in America. It was uh, the, dra- the drama of uh, Hoyer. Um, but this is a detail. And what happened during the 80s is this transformation, uh, industrial transformation, the formation of Swatch Group, which uh, invested massively in, transformi- in transforming uh, the production basis of the industry with ETA, you know, with concentrating all production in one single huge subsidiary. So during the 80s, for example, Longin and Omega, which belonged to a uh, Swatch Group, stopped making... Uh, in house are Indian production and they start to rely on ETA. So it was very important, this rationalization. And is at the same time, we have what I call lots of luxury startup in Switzerland. The so most famous being Blancpain. Uh, Blancpain was uh, created by uh, Beaver and Piguet in uh, 1982 or 83. But there's a very small new project with the idea to give uh, a second birth to the Swiss mechanical watch as a luxury product. But it was very, very small. And at the same time, also during this decade, so established all luxury companies like Patek Philippe, who uh, tended to shift to new technology, electronics in the 70s, came back to mechanical watches step by step. So we have uh, uh, really uh, at the same time in Switzerland two major trends. The big industrial group, uh, Swatch, and around it, lots of small uh, new uh, kinds of luxury startups. And these two worlds will meet each other during the 90s when Swatch purchased a Blancpain and uh, showed with Omega how you can transform a watch industry in a luxury industry. Right.
0: So let's let's unpack that a little bit. That was an excellent summation. Thank you. I mean, you, you obviously know your stuff. And I think what's what, what I'm hearing out of this is that there's a, a little bit of a misunderstanding that the emergence of the quartz movement, you know, really just sort of destroyed the Swiss watch industry. And what I'm hearing is that while that did have a major effect, it was the inability for these relatively small companies to do the investments necessary to compete on a global level. And the emergence of the Swatch Group and some of the other sort of mega luxury groups finally created the ability to invest on a large industrial level, whereas before that, for whatever reason, that wasn't possible.
1: Exactly. So uh, uh, I think one of the main uh, reasons of my book is to show that the global watch industry, not only in Switzerland, globally, uh, is driven by the the gradual raise of big business, large corporations. Uh, since the late 19th century until today. So it's a very general uh, trend, and step by step, big companies became larger and larger, more and more powerful. So for Swiss, uh, watching industry it was also important to follow this trend, and it happened with Swatch Group and other uh, luxury groups from France and, and so on.
0: I want to talk about the differences between a group like Swatch Group and LVMH. These are both rare European mega companies, they are based in different places, one in Switzerland, one in France, Um, but they both are very, very heavily invested in in the watch industry, this watch group almost entirely invested in the watch industry. And then we also have Richemont. What is different about these companies, right? Because yes, they're all large uh, corporate groups that invest in, in watchmaking, but they're all very, very different. Would you have any ability to sort of explain some of the main differences or at least explain from a personality standpoint why they're different? And why are they different? Why are they not more similar even though they're all competing in the same space?
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's an important point. And, uh, but uh, at first I would like to add one more common point, that all these groups are family companies, the new kind of family companies, uh, and uh, their ability, uh, the competitiveness comes... Uh, doesn't come from the ability to make luxury products and watches, but the ability to manage large groups. So they come from finance, consulting, like, uh, uh, like, like Swatch Group, and, uh, and, and so on. But what are the, the, the differences? Uh, so I, I would say that uh, Swatch Group is an industrial company. Uh, they don't make only luxury products, they are watch making group. That's why they have ETA and other very large production facilities. And they make a good use of these production capabilities to launch different kinds of watches on the market from uh, entry market with Swatch to mid-market with Longin to upper market with Breguet. But uh, the the core competitiveness comes from industrial basis. This is an industrial company. I, I would compare... Group with Volkswagen Group in, in Germany, making cars from uh, a right, right. to, uh, to Lamborghini, and so on. And uh, LVMH is a bit different. LVMH is a luxury company, for which uh, the starting point is not industrial basis. It's a portfolio of brands. Uh, they make, they purchase different brands around the world in different industries to make a very consistent portfolio. Uh, in in watchiness is not so so consistent, but uh, getting better and better. Uh, but so v- this is a point. and once they have purchased different brands, they need to secure a uh, industrial basis. It's what did LVMH investing in different uh, watch uh, movement companies uh, for Louis Vuitton and Dior, for 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 example. But first, is the, the brand is important for for LVMH. And I would say Richmond is very similar. is very similar to LVMH, but uh, much focused on uh, jewelry and watches, while uh, LVMH is is completely diversified in luxury business. So we have two different starting points. The industry also brand. but a- at the end. Uh, There's kind of convergence between Swatch Group starts from industry, but they started to invest massively in branding during the 1990s or after 2000. And for Richmond or LVMS, it's just the opposite. They start with brands, and they had to invest more and more on production.
0: Now, let's talk about the importance of these groups to the industry. And I think that there's a question to be made. Does the industry need these groups, or do these groups need the industry? Uh, Because I think there's arguments to be made on both sides, but at the same time, there's a very true economic reality that so much of the industrial base, or the important industrial base, is either owned or supported financially by these groups, that the industry might not actually exist without them. So I guess, you know, and again, there's other companies, Rolex, which is its own special thing. Um, But talk about how important these publicly traded companies are to today's watch industry especially the European or Swiss watch industry
1: so it's uh, a very very important search uh, group and Richmond together they have uh, nearly uh, 20, uh, th- uh, one third of, uh, of the global market in, in value so it's really really the core of this industry this industry is very concentrated in these big groups uh, but uh, so the question you ask is is very good and it goes in actually there's not a definite answer. You know, these groups are very powerful uh, and they needed the industry uh, after 2000. If you look at all the suppliers they purchased, it really shows that they needed the, the Swiss watch industry. Purchasing case-making uh, companies, uh, diamond making companies, producers of, of movements, and so on. So, the, this is a movement of verticalization, of uh, buying the, these companies to become stronger and larger. So these companies need the industry. But it's not finished. There are still independent makers, movement makers, especially for high-end luxury uh, movement. Think about uh, Christophe Claret, for for example. Uh, It's a company that developed very specific movement for very specific uh, product launched by the established brands. So they still need this special artisans, or the same for, uh, for, for, for external parts, for, for design, for dials, and, and so on. So, there's still a, a kind of dependency for high-end luxury products uh, 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 by, the, by the big groups against independent companies. And the other part of the question is, do the industry need these big players? Uh, actually, uh, the industry doesn't have choice because, you know, these big players are at, at the core of this uh, these industry. The question is not so much if they need them, is how can uh, the industry, uh, it means small independent companies, can benefit from these big companies? So if you are an artisan, as I said, independent, providing a specific service, you know, for making specific parts, or, uh, or design for Wichamil, Hublot, and so on, you can benefit from this power. But I think that you uh, benefit much more if you're a supplier, if you offer something to these big groups. Uh, because if you're an independent watch company, it's much more difficult uh, to, uh, to, to cooperate with these groups and to benefit from their power. You are competitor, and We can see it a lot on uh, global markets when these big groups tend to completely dominate distribution. And so it's very hard for independent suppliers now to access uh, distribution around the world because these big groups tend to dominate it.
0: Thank you for that. I think the last point I want to make on this before we start to go back to some, you know, further back history of the watch industry is that the future of the watch industry is very strange. We all see, sometimes myself with disbelief, the enormous demand the world has for luxury watches. I'm very happy about it. It's a hobby I have. I'm glad that other people enjoy it as well. But there seems to be this very uh, serious stickiness to watch demand, even though it defies a lot of logic. So this is, I guess you could say, the good news. I think the bad news, and I'd like to see your opinion, is that the the business models that will thrive in the future in the watch industry space are not exactly clear. There's a lot of strain on the traditional business models. There's a lot of emerging business models that haven't been tested. the future of the watch industry from a business is is unknown in terms of what exactly it will settle into. There aren't clear market forces and directions because it's, it's so tumultuous and so chaotic. And so I think the point that, that I'm trying to make is that before we talk about the, the, the history of the watch industry, as of 2022, the future is very unclear. There'll be one, but we're not really sure what it's going to look like in 10 or 20 or 30 years. Um, and I'd love your
1: opinion on this. Yeah, but uh, I don't know anything about the future at all, and and I think uh, honestly, most of managers don't know as well. It's very unclear also for managers. Nobody knows where we go. We have, you know, the impact of smartwatches and the Apple Watch on the uh, entry uh, mid segment, and nobody really knows wh- what will be the, the future in this part of, of the market. It's really completely unclear to anyone. And for, for the luxury uh, segment, where the, nearly all the Swiss watch industry uh, we focused, uh, it's also uh, very difficult to understand it, until when this business model will work. You know, it's based on lots of factors. It's not only, uh, it's not only people who like watches and collection watches that purchase it. There's uh, no, no, lots of uncertainty in terms of uh, uh, the sustainability, the social sustainability of this business model, which is based most of social inequality. Uh, as long as there's a uh, growing social inequalities, income inequalities in the world, uh, it's good for the Swiss watch, uh, watch industry. Uh, but, uh, but it will also so much on China. What will be the future uh, on, on this market? If you think, uh, about uh, growing uh, nationalism, my new uh, Chinese consumers who tend to purchase more and more Chinese products in, in, in a luxury fashion, for example, maybe not in watches yet, but it's very hard to, to understand how these new generations uh, will, uh, will think about watches, which is an unnecessary accessory. So, why investing in, in buying a uh, Swiss watches? Uh, really, uh, I, will, I agree completely with you. It's unclear. And I have really no idea at all, and I think nobody has honestly any <laughs> idea about his future. So, so let's go back to the past, talking a little bit about the time
0: before the watch industry was reliant on wealth inequality, um, and going back to when this was uh, an, a very exciting and very uh, contemporary gadget uh, that people wanted because it allowed you to tell the tell the time and related things. Let's start with. Maybe what you would consider as the birth of the Swiss watch industry, uh, sort of what what happened in the world, what was going on, and sort of what years did the really the Swiss watch industry start uh, from 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 your perspective?
1: So we don't have a really uh, starting point a clear starting point because you know, there was no documents for this time, but it's uh, early 17th century in uh, in Geneva, uh, starting. But it it was a, a very small industry. And the different um, different factors that explain that at that time uh, it was uh, the UK, especially London, that dominated the, the global market, and uh, we but we could see also some watch artisans in large European cities, in Paris, uh, for example, uh, uh, in few German uh, cities. Why? Because. Uh, Watchmakers were making and selling the product as artisans by themselves. They were close to the market. The market was, uh, the markets were in, uh, in big cities. And so Geneva started in this context, but it's a bit different for Paris or London when you have a local uh, big aristocracy. In London, uh, Geneva is a small city. So this watch industry in uh, Geneva started mostly as an export product. And this is very important. For uh, to understand the Swiss watch industry, while all competitors were domestically focused, the Swiss watchmakers were for the for the beginning from the beginning focused on foreign markets. And in Geneva, it means first, especially London, because it was the largest uh, market and, and it remains in- that way today. <laughs> ah, sorry
0: <laughs> right. it rem- like the Swiss watch industry remains that way today, starting in sixteen fifty or whatever to 2022, it remains a market for
1: for foreign consumption. Exactly, exactly. because the country is small. So when you're a small country, and we even Swiss people have have forgotten it today, but in the late 19th century, Switzerland was a very poor country with uh, lots of people uh, leaving the country. So the market was very small, and there was a way to survive. The only way to survive was to go outside of the country to find markets, to find consumers, and the point is to adapt to this demand. And this is why uh, Swiss merchants or Swiss uh, watchmakers were so good at finding uh, consumers because they adapted to uh, local demands to be able to uh, to sell something.
0: I remember stories, for example, of brands like Jacques Dreau where they would tell stories about how the original Jacques Redreau would travel very far to the east. Uh, many of his generation would go to you know, China, all the way there, to, to get orders. They would return to Switzerland. Uh, the artisans would spend, I don't know, a year or two years, whatever, making them. And then at some point they'd go back uh, east <clears throat> to the customer. And this was a common thing, even from the start. So it's interesting to me, that this focus on the East and China um, today is something that actually was part of the origination of the Swiss watch industry. W- would you say that that's accurate?
1: Yes, exactly. You know, what was important as the power of these Swiss merchants was family networks, especially for Protestant families that had to escape from France or from Italy. And uh, they had cousins everywhere in Europe and in the world. You know, you have a one guy based in uh, Neuchâtel or in Geneva, and they had a cousin in Paris, another one in Amsterdam, one in Boston, and in Italy, and in Turkey, and in China. And it was a, a very large family networks, which uh, makes it, you know, a simpler for information to uh, to move around the world.
0: Now, let's talk about it being sort of seen as the Swiss watch industry because today Swiss made is sort of a trademarked concept there's regulations behind it it's it's a it's a marketing phrase when in from your research did people start to sort of proudly say Swiss made because a lot of the times you know the the watch itself had the name of someone other than the person that made the movement it was the jeweler it was someone else um you know Piaget for example which is you know major luxury brand, Uh, they spent the first nearly 50 years of their existence only making movements and never having a name on a dial. So when was there sort of this advocacy of we are Swiss, we are proud, that that means something? When did that start?
1: So um, it's difficult to find the exact uh, moment, but I would say it's during the last third of the 20th century, of the 19th century, sorry, and uh, I think the shock of Philadelphia, Philadelphia Exhibition in 1876 was important when Swiss watchmakers uh, understood that American can watch and Ergin can make good watches for cheaper price. And there was a need to react against that, and one of the reactions was to start uh, a joint promotion around the world. Uh, it, it was very important to to organize the presence of different uh, Swiss watchmakers together in these world exhibitions. And there was an organization w- which was organized this year, in 1876, to to go to Philadelphia, uh, precisely, and it's the origin of today's Federa- Swiss Federation of the Watch Industry. Uh, really organizing the presence abroad. So it was not a was Swiss made or made in Switzerland, it's just uh, to present ourselves together and they started in Switzerland to select watches and watchmakers, uh, only to send abroad a good product to, uh, to to give a good image of the Swiss watch.
0: So let's, let's talk about, you know, the situation before this American challenge is sort of you refer to it in, in, in your book. And I think this is an important thing to talk about. Not a lot of people know about this, about uh, the sort of Swiss versus America situation and, and later, of course, uh, Japan. But what what is the situation up until this point? Um, was Switzerland the best in the world? Did it matter? You know, what was, why did they have the reaction they did to sort of the American challenge? And then I'd love to hear about the American challenge.
1: Yeah. So in the mid 19th century, Switzerland had established as the number one watchmaking nation in the world against the, the UK. So they had a complete, uh, they had no competitors because of uh, the, the, what I explained uh, previously, the ability to adapt to uh, local demands everywhere. And so due to the system called etablissage, you know, this putting out system in Switzerland with uh, lots of levels of outsourcing to, to people working in countryside and so on using cheap labor in Switzerland because Switzerland was a poor country. So cheap labor and uh, global adaptation to markets was key points and was no competitors. But it was no factories, factory system in Switzerland because labor was too cheap. Uh, the, the cheap uh, wages made uh, not necessary to invest in machinery. It was the opposite in the U.S. in mid 19th century, where wages were high, were too expensive. So to save uh, wages, uh, businessmen in America invested in technology, in machinery, factory system, and so on. It's not only in watch industries, or in all our industries in the U.S. And so they started to mass produce watches and. Uh, but uh, but uh, in the mid-19th century, uh, American watch companies didn't export so much. So they were focused on the domestic market. But it was the largest market of the world. And Swiss watchmakers relied so much on the American market that if the start uh, falling in this market is a big, big problem. And, and uh, that's what happened. In, th- in the early 1970s, the Swiss export of watches to the U.S., uh, started to decline dramatically, and uh, so a reaction was necessary. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the ablog to watch
0: store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. You can buy your wristwatches elsewhere, but at the ablog to watch store, you can celebrate your watch-collecting hobby with high-quality original products. The blog to watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at Blog2Watch. We also carry some incredible art that will grate on your walls, letting everyone know about your watch collecting enthusiasm. The bespoke yet affordable products which the Blog2Watch store carries have been designed and curated by the Blog2Watch editorial team. We ship internationally and right now are offering free global FedEx priority shipping on every shirt and watch pouch. We add new products all the time, so be sure to check out store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. So you said the 1870s, Americans stopped buying as many Swiss watches.
1: (laughs) Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Uh, you know, and, then,
0: I, and then the Swiss were like, what's up? We want to know what's
1: going on. And then they went to America and they found out? Yes, yeah, the same kind of initial spies. Uh, one of the most famous was Jacques David, the chief uh, engineer of Longines. Went to America, to Philadelphia, who visited Waltham Watch Company and other, uh, other companies who observed which machinery was at work. And when he was back to Switzerland, he published a very famous report uh, trying to wake up all of the industry, tell them, we must do something. We must uh, <laughs> to factory system. and of us, we are finished.
0: So, what you said, industrial spy, like, are you saying as a joke, or was he literally hired to go and spy?
1: No, it's just half a joke, you know. Industrial spies. Maybe industrial, industrial spy is is a bad me, a bad uh, term t- terminology. But if I say the economic intelligence, it looks uh, finer. <laughs> but. <laughs> Well, I mean, what, one imagines
0: him, you know, disguising himself in like a, a, a Waltham uniform and going inside undercover or or alternatively, you know, taking a public tour and just, you know, looking like a tourist. I'm just it's kind of interesting to think what what levels, uh, you know, would have been gone to to figure out what are they doing. Today, we know that watch brands jealously guard secrets. I've been to plenty of manufacturers uh, in Asia as well as in, in Switzerland uh, that, you know, they don't want you to take pictures. They don't want you to see the arrangements of things or the names of machines. Like, this still goes
1: on today. Uh, but once some watch at the time, which was the, the world's largest company, they were proud of the technology and they showed it to lots of visitors. So it was possible
0: to So let me guess what happened. Mr. David goes back to Switzerland, has all this fantastic information about how the Americans are doing better and how the Swiss can learn. And it, I'm sure the Swiss were just like, no, we're doing great. Uh, th- we, we do it better. Uh, the Americans don't know what they're doing. That was probably their initial response,
1: right? Exactly. That's why his report was never published because he gave conferences around, uh, around the country in Switzerland, there's there was lots of opposition uh, by small companies, you know, small watchmakers. Uh, they were against that, because the, it means the end of the small family companies. They don't have enough money to invest in new technology, so they will lose their companies. we were strongly against that. Workers were also against that. We are independent workers at home. Uh, we are not going to, to become a factory worker and so on. So a uh, complete opposition, especially in old watchmaking regions like Geneva or Le Locle, where there were, there were lots of artisans with a uh, lots of pride for the uh, handcraft work.
0: And did it take at least 10 years for the Swiss watch industry to do something about it?
1: Yeah, 10 20 years from from yeah uh, yep. it's a gradual change a grand, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, some companies understood and, uh, and there, was, there was a winner uh, a very interesting example is a uh, case of omega omega was it used to be a Louis bronze uh, family company it was founded in 1848 in Lashoette and in Lashoette everybody was against uh, industrialization and factories and so on. But uh, the grand family wanted to industrialize. So what did they do? They left Laschet Phone in the late uh, 19th century and they went to Biel, uh, which was uh, still uh, in which uh, cities, are watching the watch industry was just as, at its beginning. So they welcomed a lot of uh, factories and they started the Omega factory in Biel and it became what we know today.
0: Now, let me ask you a question about this because this is sort of a very contemporary topic even with industrialization. You know, do you replace people with machines? Is it better? Is it worse? I think there's an added dimension here that isn't being spoken about. Because, And, and again, I'd like to hear from you. Uh, but if you just sort of listen to this conversation, basically you'll think that Switzerland was slow to adopt labor-saving techniques so that they can pump out product uh, that's less expensive. And I think it's a, another element. I think the 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 techniques used especially the machines to make parts created um, interchangeable parts. And there was a lot of non-interchangeability in the Swiss product. So the Swiss product uh, suffered because it was difficult to fix, difficult to replicate, maybe sometimes not even performed as well. So it's less about money savings, even though that's definitely part of it. And I think it's actually more about making a product that performed better. But please, give me your perspective on this.
1: Yeah, it's, it's exactly that. And when David came back to, to Switzerland. Uh, Actually, the watchmaker, the assembly makers, you know, the the producers of complete watches were against industrialization. But uh, he promoted first uh, standardization of parts, uh, screws, and and so on, uh, at at the national level, and uh, it went quite well. So uh, we can see uh, from very early on, before uh, watches uh, themselves, Parts, components, uh, and so on, were uh, st- step by step standardised, and this gave birth to the first large factories in the Swiss watch industry. Are not producers of finished watches, but of ebauches, of, Eboche, of uh, parts, and so on. And that's why uh, the production of when of movements, was. Uh, in the early uh, 20th century, mostly centralized in a few big companies that supplied all the watch assemblers. So it's a two-fold organization, standardization for uh, components and lack of standardization for finished watches. And this was in 20th century, the competitiveness of the Swiss watch industry because we can reduce uh, p- production cost if we standardized so movements and components, and at the same time, we can continue to adapt to all demands of the world.
0: So what do they do about it? I mean, did they just they just change everything up and start, you know, bringing the machinery? Do they fire a lot of people? Do they grow? What, what was actually the response to this American challenge?
1: So the, the point is, uh, is, the global demand for cheese was growing very fast. So uh, an important point is going outside of the U.S. So in Europe, in Germany, in England, and so on. Other markets as a basis for, for growth first, and then um, organizing the presence in America. Uh, they saw that, you know, in America, if you must produce watches, you have a standardization. Uh, watches have more or less all the same size. And uh, David and other watchmakers in Switzerland understood that. So, 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 so that if we want to go to America, we need to have the same size for our watches than American uh, companies. And they developed mass-produced movements of the same size, and they exported only movement to the U.S., uh, encasing them in uh, American-made uh, cases to, to, uh, to have a design which... Uh, Responded to the to uh, the tastes of American consumers, and one of the mo- of the first movements developed for the American market with an American size was the Caliber Omega. Uh, Omega was first the name of of Caliber for the U.S. market, and it became the name of the company.
0: So I have to ask, what exactly was the the difference? You said there was a difference in size, but you said taste and things like that. What would have been the noticeable differences between an American watch and a Swiss watch at the time?
1: Uh, it depends. It taste is, uh, you know, um, the, 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 not so much the size of the watch. Because in Switzerland, it's not so much a Swiss taste, because in Switzerland, uh, people used to make any kind of product for, for Chinese market, Turkish market, American markets, and so on. Uh, so that's why it's difficult to make a difference between a Swiss watch and an American watch because there's no Swiss watch uh, actually in itself. It depends on the country. Okay, but
0: I'm just I'm just saying like what is it that America wanted different? I mean, in the world of cars, you can think you know larger, higher ground clearance, bigger engines, you know, compared to like a European car that would need to be for smaller roads and more fuel efficient, at least historically. But in, in, I'm just trying to get some idea of. Functionally speaking, what made the two products kind of distinct? Like, a consumer would have been able to look at it and be like, oh, that's an American watch, or oh, that's a Swiss watch. Like, What would that have been like?
1: Uh, actually, the size was not especially uh, particularly very big in uh, in American watches at the time. Okay, but, okay. Uh, the design was quite simple because uh, it was mass-produced. Uh, so the movement was simple. And, uh, but the case is, as not uh, the design changed a lot because, uh, actually, Watham and Ergin companies did not uh, sell uh, finished watches, actually. Uh, They they sold uh, movements. And there were jobbers around uh, the country in America that uh, finished the watches and that offered uh, a very broad variety of watches in terms of designs, even if the size and the movements were... Interesting. uh,
0: that's interesting. I didn't. I didn't know that. So they would sell like a kit, and then your local watchmaker would like put the kit together with their their case and their dial, and however they thought you they wanted the customer the, to, to have it. They
1: sold uh, like uh, uh, with uh, say order uh, sales uh, system around the country movements, and you go. You could go to a jeweler, and he would uh, make uh, the watch uh, according to your tasties. Uh, Showing you uh, interesting, interesting of of cases and and so on.
0: Now, one of the most important things I think to mention in this era, or maybe it was a little bit after this era, was the democratization of the watch as being a tool that that more people could have. Um, And we've seen this in our lifetimes with various types of technology and electronics, where when it first comes out, it's very, very expensive. And then maybe if if we're lucky, there are techniques available to make it less and less expensive to make with about the same quality, and everyone can enjoy it. Um, and the beginning of the watch industry, it wasn't just for the very rich because they were snooty. It was just for the very rich because those are the only people who could afford the time and effort required to actually produce a machine that that somewhat tells the time. It took many, many generations of making watches before techniques to mass produce them and thus reduce the cost were developed so that the average person first uh, just a rich person and then maybe middle class and then at some point very poor person. So help explain a little bit of the history of I guess affordability and when when was the wristwatch starting to be something that a that a middle class person could afford?
1: Yeah, it's a good point.
0: Or pocket watch or pocket watch.
1: It's very similar to you just mentioned cars before. It's exactly the same. So at first. Watch is addressed to rich people because uh, it was the only one who would afford buying them. And uh, so there's not so much social need for a watch, you know, in, in traditional societies where uh, organized on uh, loosely time and, and so on. Uh, but once you have factory work, schools, uh, army trains and so on, you must, everybody must follow the right time. So it's necessary to have a watch. So it creates a demand for watches, and the mass production in late nineteenth century makes it possible also to uh, to launch cheap watches with lower quality, but anyway you can no, uh, you can provide the time to a broad range of people. And with a specific uh, uh, movement developed for that, called a roscop watch or pin lever watch, more you know with a simpler movement with less, par- less parts. And, uh, of course, le- lower quality, but anyway, you could uh, offer these these watches to, uh, to to working classes. It's starting in the a- late 19th century. And uh, so before, okay. the, before the wristwatch, starting with the pocket watches and then wristwatch. Uh, so developed a lot with uh, watches for working classes, of course, with, uh, you know, watch.
0: Now... Uh, the, the wristwatch, of course, is the next natural part of the conversation, but I think I want to talk a little bit more about this object and society. Today, people that like watches own many watches, and that's great. I have a lot. Hopefully, you have a lot as well. But that wasn't always the case. In fact, this notion of owning a bunch of mechanical watches is a very modern phenomenon. Is only available because they're relatively affordable to produce right now. For many years, this was something that you know, you needed to take care of. You needed to have it serviced because it, you know, it was the only one you had, um, and that's and that's why you tried to take care of it. Discuss a little bit about how the watch fit into people's society and the types of services around them—watchmakers, repairs, straps—that were necessary to sort of satisfy all the demand. Like, you know, just describe the industry a little bit.
1: Yeah, so in uh, if you talk about late 19th century, uh, it depends on the segments. If you have a high quality. Uh, Expensive watch, of course, was maintenance, uh, repairs, and so on, made by independent jewelers in uh, in cities. It's not uh, companies like today who have their own after-sales services, but it's independent uh, jewelers selling watches and repairing them. Uh, but if you are lower in the market, actually. Uh, you know, uh, like with these roscop watches, is you use it as long as you can, and when it's finished, it's a consumer good. When when it's broken, it's broken, and you buy a new one. Uh, was also this phenomenon from from early on, even if it's not so so much known. But uh, for, for some watches, roscop watches uh, were not uh, repaired so so much.
0: Do you know roughly when the timepiece? I think it was a pocket watch. Became accurate enough that you could rely on just it, and this might be a little bit esoteric, but there was a there was a critical time when watches were, like, kind of a vague approximation to when they were like, yeah, they're going to be accurate to within a few seconds a day, and at that point you could go days, if not weeks, before you saw an, another, you know, clock that was more accurate to to you know synchronize it with. Um, you know, wh- when was this era exactly, where the the average person had a very accurate
1: experience with their watch? I cannot I cannot tell you with the average person, but when you look at okay. uh, as the data from a uh, of uh, chronometry, we can see that we have a growing number of of, of companies that can uh, produce uh, these kind of watches, and it started I would say during the interwar years when uh, the technology became uh, stable enough to uh, mass-produce high-quality uh, movements.
0: The interwar years, like between World War One and Two, yeah. I mean, there's so it, many wars. Yes,
1: exactly. There was the 20s and 30s with a shift with okay. uh, waste work. uh The companies invested a lot in making uh, more precise watches and with more sustainable watches, now having artificial uh, jewels, uh, developing um, uh, the, the automatic watch, developing anti-shock uh, components, and so on. So it will, uh, uh, or um, uh, yes, with we, with we good to uh, to have a more uh, a stronger movements, especially needed for wristwatches, because because with more shocks and more uh, external uh, pressures on uh, on wristwatches than a pocket watch. So that's why it's just very important, these decades.
0: Again, you know, these are, I think, important questions or things to talk about. At least I'm interested because today we take for granted the fact that the average mechanical watch is so good. Like across the board today, quality is so high that most people never even have to think about the fact that there was a time when you bought a watch, you're like, oh my God, this is so much less accurate than my last watch or what's wrong with this thing. Like there are problems today, but for the most part, all you know reasonably well-assembled watches perform excellently. So quality is not really a major issue in the watch industry. It's maybe marketing and competition and price and things like that. But everyone, sort of across the board, is consistently high when it comes to quality perspective today. Do you have an opinion on that?
1: Yeah, you're, no, you are you're completely right. And what, what uh, the turning point for that is? Uh, Eric, twin watches, quartz watches. Uh, Because with course watches, the most important impact was the end of Roscoe watches, of these low-quality mechanical watches. Because they were anyway uh, more costly to produce than course watches and less accurate. So nobody would buy them anymore. And they collapsed completely in a few years. We have uh, uh, the collapse of Timex in the US, of many Swiss watch companies. And uh, from that time, uh, old watches have uh, good uh, accuracy. So,
0: I think the point in the conversation now we only have a few minutes left, and again, there's so many things we could talk about. Is the the wristwatch? Uh, the wristwatch entered the scene in the early 20th century. What point uh, is, is it that you felt the wristwatch overtook the pocket watch in terms of the interest of the industry from any type of mass consumer basis?
1: Yeah, yes, uh, it's a technical innovation, but more importantly, it's a marketing innovation it makes it possible to open new markets when you have a wristwatch. So also, uh, in the industry, uh, it's always, uh, there's lots of controversies about who invented the wristwatch, but yeah, for me, it's not so interesting. When it, What is interesting is the shift. When the industry shifted from pocket watches to wristwatches, and it happened in the 20s. The shift happened in okay, the, tw- the 20s. And so it leads, it led, as I said, to some technical issues Uh, Because if you have always a watch on your wrist, you must be sure it's uh, waterproof, it would be the story of Rolex, uh, that it's accurate enough, and uh, you you need uh, the the power shock components, and so on. So, it leads to to, uh, technological issues. But at the same time, the wristwatch was used by uh, many companies to promote new markets, and one of the most important markets were women. Watches for women. It was nearly uh, only a niche, niche market in 19th century, uh, women for, for watches. And now it became a fashion accessory. Now, these are uh, a fashion accessory for women. So it's an invention of, of the 20s. And it's very interesting when you, when you see all of these uh, advertisements of this decade from Omega, uh, Rolex, and other. they've always a different uh, gendered uh, communication for the women. It's a nice, Fashion accessory, and for the men, it's a precise watch to no time. So you, you can see the different position of, of men and women in society through these, uh, these advertisements. And watchmakers understood that and developed a product for women. So it's the start of fashion watches, and after it, it will shift uh, later on for, for, for men. Also. But first, it's a market for women. And a uh, second market, as we mentioned it so uh, briefly uh, before, are uh, uh, working classes. Working classes, because uh, it, you can have uh, Wascope re- uh, wristwatches. And it became a hit in the 30s, these uh, cheap wristwatches, uh, which was the core of the Swiss watch industry during uh, during this period, and during all uh, the, the high growth uh, decades after World War II.
0: Was there a different response to the wristwatch market from the American versus Swiss watch industry? Did one embrace it sooner than the other? Did one invest it in it more? Because you don't really hear the stories about those famous early American wristwatches you hear about, oh, you know, Rolex and, and Oyster yeah. and waterproofness. I'm just, yeah, go ahead.
1: So it was. For established companies in America, especially Walsam and Elgin, which dominated the American uh, industry in the 19th century, um, it was a big crisis. They were late to adapt and to develop, to launch wristwatches because they were too dominant over the market. There was no incentive, not so much uh, competitive pressures. And uh, when the, during the interwar years, during the 20s and 30s, these two big manufacturers facing crisis and competition tried, uh, they didn't try to innovate, but they were looking for the protection of the US government by increasing import duties for foreign watches. So they made more politics than uh, innovation, and it was a source of the uh, decline. But some other American companies were able to uh, develop some new business models using the wristwatch. The most important is Bulova. Bulova, w- which existed since the late 19th century with pocket watches, but uh, the shift to wristwatch was a, a chance taken by Bulova to establish the number one watch company uh, in uh, in America.
0: So Bulova made a an interesting risky bet, and you're sort of saying the rest were very conservative and I guess in a sense, that's not very surprising for watchmakers to to be conservative in how they
1: think. (laughs) Yes, you are completely right. But when you have a very strong uh, competitive pressure, uh, you know, even if you're conservative, some of them take opportunities to to launch new products, as as you can still see uh, today.
0: Now, the American watch industry was so strong and so dominant and had so much going for it. And you mentioned how the shift to, to wristwatches and things like that created all these political pressures rather than innovation and investment. And a lot of things happened, and you know a lot of these companies went away or later were purchased by foreign investment. And right now you have, in America, Timex, uh, which I believe is currently uh, owned in America, but they don't own themselves. Uh, Fossil Group, which is a relatively new creation, so it's not a historic one. Um you know, you have a, a couple of <clears throat> great names still around, but for the most part, it's not a very strong industry in America. Um, when when did that happen? What when did that sort of it de- was it a slow decline? Was it a rapid decline? When did the American watch industry start to sort of fade out, and other markets mm-hmm. in Asia and and in Europe pick it back up?
1: Sorry. So I would say this, uh, the quartz crisis was a turning point. We often say that it was a shock on the Swiss watch industry, but the shock was much more important on uh, US firms. First, because Interesting. it led to the end of roscop uh, production, so it, it's a shock for Timex, which was a roscop producer. Uh, but for other uh, good companies, especially Hamilton and uh, Birova, actually they had made uh, what we what we call wrong. Uh, technical choices in the 60s, developing uh, electrical watch for Hamilton or the Accutron watch for Bulova, which was not uh, exactly quartz watches. So they invested in different technologies. They focused on that. And when uh, they noticed uh, it was not the right technology, it was too late. Uh, to uh, to do something different, but at the same time, the incentive to invest in uh, innovation in, in watchmaking was low. Before both companies, Hamilton and Bulova, had lots of defense contracts in the U.S. So you know, you know it can provide, gives you lots of lots of uh, lots of money. By working for for the army, and that's what uh, they did a lot. Uh, bureau was uh, chaired by the by a, a former general, so it was very very linked with with, link with, uh, with the defense uh, demo.
0: Is, is it similar to the situation with semiconductors, where it's cheaper to make them outside of America, but they still need the technology to be able to be produced domestically, so they keep some companies alive? Is that sort of how it was? With the defense department and watchmaking?
1: No, I don't think so, because, uh, you know, uh, technology related to, uh, to uh, watches was not so much important. Uh, there are lots of other uh, producers of, of, of uh, micro techniques and, and so on. So it's within, okay. within okay. these firms, it was easier to get defense contracts than investing in a civil product. Uh, which was very, very competitive. But the quartz watch is interesting. Quartz watch, especially for digital watches, was a chance for many American electronics companies to launch digital watches, uh, Texas Instrument, Motorola, uh, and others, General Electric also, launched. Uh, digital watches, but they lacked uh, or any uh, marketing capability to uh, to do something uh, in a long-term perspective, and it didn't last. It's a bit similar to some extent to many, many uh, smartwatch uh, producers today. Uh, they can make something, but it's difficult to sell it.
0: Right, right. Well, this, is, this has been such a fantastic conversation. We've gone a few minutes over, but I'm I hope I hope you can tell this is a topic I'm I'm also very interested in. So it was so good to talk about this. Um, I'm sure we'll have to have another conversation. Um, Pierre, yves please tell everyone where they can buy it. The book is "The Business of Time: A Global History of the Watch Industry." Uh, where can they find the
1: book? So it was published by Manchester University Press. So you can uh, you can uh, order it from the website of Manchester University Press or on Amazon and other uh, online uh, common. Uh, uh, websites to order books. My
0: guest has been Mr. Pierre-Yves Donze. He is a professor of business history uh, in Osaka, and he knows a lot about the watch industry. Pierre-Yves, thank you so much. Uh,
1: thanks, again for all these conversation. It was really great.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at a for the latest in watch news reviews and culture. Visit a blog